Welcome to the Plenteous Redemption Podcast, where the cross and the culture are on a collision course for discussion. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require sign, the Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Under the Jews a stumbling block, under the Greeks foolishness, but under them which are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now, here's your host, Thomas Irvin. All right, so we left off talking about Erasmus. Erasmus is an incredible guy. Um, who can tell me a few things about Erasmus that they remember from last week? Yeah, it was a brilliant man. Possibly the most brilliant man to live in the 16th century. Yes, he, he, the amount of work that 10 men could produce in an hour or in a day he could do that by himself. Yes, sir. He was? He was a Catholic priest. Yes. He was a prolific writer. He was a prolific writer. That is exactly right. So that is Erasmus. He is an incredible guy. And um, we're going to pick up right where we left off. We, we had just finished talking about him creating his fifth and final edition, which was produced in 1535, just before his death. And what was it he produced? What was it called? The Textus Receptus, which means what in English? Received text. Very good. Now, he refused to use Rome's favorite text. And that really irked the Catholic Church. Now, again, they didn't know what to do with this guy, because when you have someone with this kind of mental capacity and writing ability who could just destroy your entire... (laughs) church and, and one sitting with his pen, um, you know, they, 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 they tried to bribe him, as we talked about. They did everything they could to try and sway him in a direction, and he was not, he was not falling for it. Uh, he refused to use the text, which was produced by Jerome. It came to be known as, anybody remember? I heard some murmuring, but the new Latin... Vulgate. Now, they didn't call it the New Latin Vulgate. They called it the Latin Vulgate, but there was already a Latin Vulgate. This is what the devil does. They bring, they, he produces men. The Bible says that, that you should not be, uh, I forget the wording of the text, but it should, not, it should not surprise you that Satan hath turned himself into a minister of light. He's not offering you alcohol. He's not offering you prostitution. He's not offering you... He's not offering you the lust of your flesh. You will go find that yourself if you don't keep your body under control. 
What he's going to offer you is a fake Bible or a fake religion. He's going, to, he's going to see you getting closer to the truth, and he's going to send a Catholic priest to interject, or he's going to send a Pentecostal to interject, or he's going to send a Muslim to interject, someone to come in between you and the truth. And so the, the old Latin Vulgate, the, the original one, came from the, the various texts that came from Antioch, which is... Uh, what are some of the names for the text that came from Antioch? What empire protected this text? The Byzantine Empire, which gave it the name, the Byzantine text. Right? So uh, the Old Latin Vulgate came from this line of manuscripts, which means the Old Latin Vulgate, insofar as it was reliably translated, and, and I don't read Latin, so I can't tell you if it was or wasn't, <laughs> but... Erasmus thought that that was the word of God, and he could read Latin, and he could read Greek. So he could read this Greek text, and he could read this Latin text, and in fact, he took the two together, and he created the Textus Receptus. Because you got to remember, he doesn't have you know, the book of Matthew in front of him. <laughs> He's got pieces of manuscripts that have most or some or all of Matthew. And so he... When he's putting all this together, you know, it goes back to the word edit. We use I use the word edit in the last class, and I want to make sure to emphasize what I mean by that. He he didn't change the text in some way. He had to take all the existing manuscripts that he could get his hands on, and he had to piece them all together to create the book of Matthew or the book of Mark or Luke or John and all the way through. It's not like we have it so good today. You're like, why didn't he just open his Bible and just see what it said there? (laughs) Doesn't have one. That's what we're trying to get to. We're trying to get to a book like this. And you're talking about a man who's who's coming from darkness and trying to provide the world with light. That's an unbelievably difficult position to be in. But Erasmus had the ability to do that. Now what Jerome did here is he created the Latin Vulgate from the, should we give it a nickname? So it's from the Alexandrian text. So what he did was what they, what they always do is they, they claim they're going to give you a better version of what exists by coming from corrupt text and then creating a corrupt version of what already exists. And then they try to sell that to you. It's like having a steak in one hand and rancid meat in the other and saying, I promise the rancid meat is meat. <laughs> it's meat. You probably don't want to eat it, though. <laughs> uh, you'll be as sick as I was the past few weeks. So... Um, so that Erasmus understood the mentality of this group is to edit in the full sense of the word. Now, what Erasmus did, there's, there's, a, there's a, uh, a technical term for it, and uh, we'll get to it, I believe, soon. It's called to collate. When you collate something, when it comes to manuscripts, you collate the manuscripts by taking them and, and examining them, you verify their validity. You find out what's there and how much is there. As you might, you may have found a, a let's say, you know, some kid was playing in a cave and he found a, a, a manuscript laying there and you pick it up and half of it is destroyed. Well, if it's the book of Romans, you say, let's say you have Romans one through seven that, that, it, that survived. Well, that's, that's what they have here. They have pieces, pieces of pot shards. They have, you know, leftover 
actual papyrus manuscripts or vellum manuscripts, that are, and vellum is, is written on uh, like calf skin, leather of some sort, animal skin of some sort. And so they've got pieces of this that they're trying to put together and they're trying to find out where is the word of God. And so he used this old Latin Vulgate as his guide as he went through the, the manuscripts from the Byzantine text that he, had, he could get his hands on. And so with all that together, he's able to verify where the word of God is. And then now, now imagine if that's what we had to refer to today. Let's, let's, it's even worse than that. Imagine the men today who say, well, in the originals, this is what they're referring to. You don't have the originals. You've never seen the originals. But if you wanted to leave a perfect book and go back to a scattered group of manuscripts and try to piece together the word of God on your own, have at it. <laughs> you're, you're welcome to do so. Uh, I think I'll stick with what God gave me where it's all assembled in one book and and I can depend upon it as the perfect word of God unashamedly and then I can demonstrate it to be so both historically and biblically so I'm going to stay right here you can keep referring to this mythical creature that exists called the Greek and let me know when you get to the Hebrew because I never hear you make mention of that you only refer to the Greek, whatever that is. And by the Greek, like I've said probably 30 times in this class so far, they went to a Greek dictionary and looked up an English word. They did not go to a Greek manuscript or a Greek New Testament and read and say, oh, you know, this would be better worded this way. <laughs> they can't do that. So they, they think it's a good idea and they think it's, it's intelligent and it's intellectual to stand in front of you and open a Greek dictionary and tell you that this word, I mean, God really struggled with this English word, but I'm here. And now that I'm here, I'm going to fix God's mistake because I have a strong concordance and I can open it and I can look up an English word and tell you what the Greek word is. And it's even funnier when they try to say the Greek word. Because if they said that Greek word to a Greek-speaking person, they would look at them and scratch their head. Like, what are you saying? <laughs> because they don't know Greek. They can't speak it. They can't read it. They, they, but they, they've, they've created this idea that I can, I can open this lexicon or I can open this concordance and I can look up an English word and I can pretend to know what this Greek word is and it'll have four or five definitions that are that are related to this Greek word. So I'll pick the one that I think probably should have went here or a better word that I think should have went here and, and then I'll go and I'll tell that to God's people. Why? Why would you do that? The only reason you would do that is you don't believe this book is the word of God. And if you don't believe this book is the word of God, you're going you're gonna to send people away from the word of God to the, to the mythical creature called the Greek. And I'm not going there. I'm not going to encourage you to go there. I'm going to encourage you to believe your English Bible. And that's not the mentality here. The mentality here is you can edit God's word. You can change God's word. If you don't like what you have and it doesn't fit your religion, well, let's just go to Alexandria. Alexandrian texts are already corrupt. Why not just corrupt them more? <laughs> Jerome didn't like what it said, and he changed it. So if I don't like what it says, then I can change it. And it's a never-ending process. That's why you have the NIV from 
the 1960s, you have the NIV from the 1970s, you have the NIV from the 1980s, the 1990s, to the 2000s. When do you ever stop changing God's word? Once you adopt this mentality, when does it stop? It doesn't. Now, if there was a, if there was a reason to adopt this mentality, that'd be a, it'd be a whole different story. That's the problem with the Luganda Bible. You have nothing else reliable to refer to. In English, we have something reliable to refer to. And it's a failure on the part of God's preachers when they don't point you to trust in that book. They don't direct you and encourage you to trust this book. It's a complete failure, and it's complete ignorance. So uh, the problems people claim that man has altered various texts over time did happen with the Alexandrian text. Now, if you think about that, this idea, when you, when you try and tell somebody, well, this is the Word of God, and they'll say, well, don't you know that the, you know, the Bible was edited over time? Well, one of them was. Not this one. This one has been, well, other, than, other than spelling changes and removing printing errors, this book is exactly the same as the day it was produced in 1611. You couldn't say that about any NIV, any NASB, any other Bible, you can, the, the New King James, none of them are the same as the day when they were printed. This is what blows my mind about it all. So people complain that the Bible has been edited over time. Well, the Bible that came from Alexandria has indeed been edited over time. But then when they go to choose a Bible to stick with, they choose a Bible that came from Alexandria. Why would you do that? It can be demonstrated both historically and biblically that this, has, this text from Antioch, the Byzantine text, the traditional text, the Textus Receptus, has not been changed. When it gets into the New Testament text of the King James Bible, it has not been changed. It's exactly the same. It, you can run it all the way back to, to the oldest Greek manuscript extant. So, it, the oldest text that, it, that is extant, you can take it, and if you have the ability to go from English to Greek, you can compare it, and you'll find it's exactly the same as the King James Bible. So why would you abandon the King James Bible and go to a text or to a book that comes from Alexandria? If the argument is you can't trust that book because it's been edited, yes, Alexandria has been edited every step of the way. From, from Greek to Latin to English, whatever language these people with this mentality, if they produce a Bible or a text or a manuscript or anything related to God, they're going to change it. But not these. It remains the same every time. The mentality here, this is God's word. We do what it says. The mentality here is... Uh, <laughs> We're going to tweak God's word to help God out a little bit. God probably didn't say this. I don't think God would say it this way. So we're just going to make some alterations. We believe that baptism is a means of salvation. So we're not going to leave Acts 8.37 in there. God wouldn't have said that. God agrees with us. <laughs> so these people left the, left the text as it, as it is and believe you should believe it and do what it says. These people say, well, well, we'll leave most of it as it is. You know, we're just going to make some changes here and there. <laughs> and that's the folly of the, whole, of the whole system. Now, Erasmus' Greek text, the Textus Receptus, was widely welcomed in Europe. And 
Again, you're going to see this name a couple of times. Martin Luther. Welcome this new text with open arms. When it comes to the Protestant Reformation, the way to properly think about Protestants is they were the people who broke free from Rome. They are the people that that broke the stronghold Rome had on the world. The problem is when they left Rome, they just moved next door. (laughs) They should have went miles down the road in terms of believing the Bible. They didn't do that. They got just enough light basically to understand that justification is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And that's about as far as they went. Then they adopted many of Rome's religious tendencies and just put them back into practice. Now, the odd thing about Protestant churches, some of them were strong Bible-believing churches. Some of their uh, ministers were strong Bible-believing men. And some of them were so much like Rome that you, you wouldn't be able to tell the difference. Now, over time, Protestant churches, they started out this way. They started out wanting the Word of God. One of the primary leaders of the Protestant Reformation is Martin Luther. And he used the Masoretic text for his Old Testament, and he used the Textus Receptus for his New Testament. That is a man who is focused on the Word of God. He had at least an understanding that what broke me away from Rome is I found a copy, a reliable copy of the book of Romans. And by the time he gets to chapter 3 and then he gets to chapter 5 and he starts to realize that works cannot save you, but therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, Romans 5.1, that, that ruined everything for him. Then he goes to, the, to, to that church in, in Wittenberg and he nails his 95 thesis to the front door and everything just broke up. Everything fell apart. Rome no longer had a stranglehold on the world. That act literally blew the door wide open for, for people who wanted the Bible. Now, immediately after that, the Textus Receptus and other forms of, of the Bible began to just spread like wildfire across Europe, making its way. All of this starts in the Middle East and makes its way across Europe to England. It, it literally, over like a period of about 1,500 years, it's just making its way slowly to England. And by the time we get to England, all of this has, has the, the Reformation has broken the door wide open. By the time we get to England, we're entering into the time, that the church period, known as the Philadelphia church period. When these Bible-believing churches start to break out all over the place. They have the Word of God. There's an actual focus on the Word of God. Well, now there's a need for a fully assembled, accurate copy of God's Word. And so these people go to work on that, and they begin trying to resolve that. So all all this is coming together at the same time. That's why it's important to get a general idea of the dates. You go from the first century, right after Christ, and the Word of God is beginning to spread. It's being written by the, the, the apostles, and uh, it's being given to people who are known as the church fathers. They refer to it in their writings, but everybody can't have a copy. You can't even get, you couldn't even afford paper back then. Uh, I mean, it wasn't until like the, the 15 or 1600s where, where paper was equivalent to like a one year, a one year salary. <laughs> So if you wanted to buy paper, you'd have to, you'd have to save your entire year's salary just to buy a piece of paper and write something on it. 
you, I mean, it's, you can go right down to, to the store and, and the notebooks that you have in front of you were 2,400 shillings. It's very easy for you. And it was not easy for them. And so, so you can imagine Erasmus is trying to put all this together and create this cohesive, coherent, uh, properly translated text that has all of the New Testament compiled in one place. That's huge. All right, so Erasmus puts this together, and um, it becomes known as the Textus Receptus. Martin Luther used this text to translate his German Bible. Um, and then the, the, text, the existence of the Textus Receptus further broke Rome's hold on the world and pushed the Protestant Reformation forward. After Erasmus died, men resumed his work. Now here's, again, the folly of... Referring to the Greek or ideas like double inspiration, which I call seminary schoolboy dogma. It's not real. It's, you know, if, if you can't win an argument, if you just create a straw man and argue against the straw man, you don't have to deal with the actual merits of the other person's argument. You can just point to something that doesn't exist. I don't know any Bible believer who believes the King James Bible was a second inspiration. I don't, I don't know a single one. But what happened is seminaries got together and created this theory called double inspiration. And they believe they have defeated the idea of the King James Bible being the perfect word of God. Now, why you would want to do that, I don't know. But they believe they defeated the idea by creating an argument that has nothing to do with, with what people who believe the King James Bible is the Word of God believe. <laughs> so when somebody comes and, they say, and you say, well, I believe the King James Bible is the perfect Word of God, they'll say, well, then you believe in double inspiration. No, I don't. <laughs> don't tell me I believe that. You don't even know what you're talking about. Because if you ask them, well, where's the Word of God? Well, I believe the Word of God is the Textus Receptus. Okay, which one? There are 10 editions made by three different men. So which man and which edition of that man's work are you calling the perfect word of God? They don't even know that that exists. That same seminary told them what we believe in the, in the originals. Well, the Textus Receptus is not an original. The Textus Receptus is an assembly of the Byzantine text and the Latin Vulgate combined together so that you could have the New Testament in one book. So if you're going to say the originals, you've got to at least go back to the Byzantine text which still is not the originals. <laughs> there are no originals. That's a dumb idea. Those manuscripts are copies of copies of copies of copies that happen to survive over time. So at the best, you have copies that came 100 years after Christ, 200 years after Christ. Most of them around 400 years after Christ. At best, that's as far back as you can go. Now, that's pretty good. No other Greek text can do that. You can't find that with Aristotle. You can't find that with Plato. You can't find that with, with any of the great works that have survived over time. They don't have the, nearly the amount of, of manuscript evidence that the, that the New Testament has for the King James Bible. This guy can't even do that. Jerome couldn't do that. They've got like, out of 5,200 plus manuscripts, they have like seven or ten texts. That, that exist for, for this line of manuscripts. 
That means all 5,200 plus manuscripts on the other side belong to the King James Bible. The problem is not evidence. The problem is I have a preconceived idea. My heart doesn't want to believe that's the word of God. And so I've decided to go with that. And now I've got to create stupid arguments to try and make it seem like I'm the dumb one because I believe I have the perfect word of God. And you're wrong. You're demonstrably wrong. And you're going to look silly when I start asking you, well, which, which version of the Texas Receptus are you referring to? What do you mean? <laughs> well, are you, do you only read the ones made by Erasmus? Because he made five editions. Which one of those do you read? Or do you only read, so, so you get to the, the, the next two men, you have Robert Stephanus, and he produced four editions after Erasmus. Okay, are you going to, and, and those editions, guess what they were called? The Textus Receptus. Then you have Theodore Beza, and he produced ten editions. Okay, guess what all the, guess what every edition was called? The Textus Receptus. You have 19 editions you can choose from. Three authors, 19 editions. Which one are you referring to? And they didn't even know this existed. They just know that their seminary professor told them, we believe in the originals, which there are no originals. You don't know what you're talking about. And you should stop wasting people's time and misleading people and discouraging them from believing the word of God. Especially if you don't know enough about the text you claim is the word of God. If you haven't done enough basic study of the text that, that you're arguing is the word of God, which again is a Greek New Testament. So where's your Old Testament? And of course they're going to say, well, we believe in the Masoretic text. But you didn't say that. You said in the originals and in the original Greek. Well, you don't have an original Greek Old Testament manuscript. There was one existing Greek manuscript that I know of, and it was, it, it was proven to be a complete and total fake. It's called the Septuagint. And we'll get to it eventually. It's a nice word. You should all learn it. I'm sure you're excited about that. Here's what makes the whole situ- situation for them even worse. It's not a problem for me. It's a problem for them. The last edition of Theodore Beza's Textus Receptus is the text that was used to create the King James Bible. It wasn't even one of Erasmus' texts. It was the last one produced by Theodore Beza. That became the foundation for the King James translators. In 1633, this text was printed as a Greek New Testament. The title given it at that time was the Received Text or the Textus Receptus. I didn't go back to verify this. Historically, you could make the argument it wasn't even called the Textus Receptus until Theodore Beza finished his final edition, and it was printed in 1633, which, by the way, is 22 years after the King James Bible was created. The King James Bible is older than the Textus Receptus. <laughs> it's pure ignorance, but they don't know it's ignorance. They think it sounds so intellectual to say, well, I believe in the originals. Shut up. You don't know what you're talking about. Somebody told you that, you didn't look into it, and now you're just blindly repeating it as though, as though it meant something, and it doesn't. You can trust this book, the King James Bible. Now, back to Erasmus. 
1559, the Catholic Church does what they do. You can't deal with the man while he's alive, so guess what they did after he died? <laughs> In 1559, the Catholic Church placed the writings of Erasmus on the index of forbidden writings. They refused to deal with him while he was alive because he would have destroyed them. (laughs) There was nothing they could have done with that man. So they waited until he was dead for 23 years. Then they censored his work. But it was too late. His work had already spread and God was using it to further preserve the word of God. Now, all extant manuscripts fit into one of two lines of manuscripts. Anybody remember what they are? What's the first line or the first lineage? Alexandrian. What is it also known as? It's Alexandrian text or the uh, Western text. Very good. All right, so then what's the second line called? Antioch is from Antioch. What are some other names given that line of manuscripts? Byzantine. Again? Yeah, Byzantine. What else? Traditional. What else? Majority. What else? Eventually it became known as Textus Receptus. All right, this line follows from Antioch, Syria, and they agree with the Textus Receptus, which was the foundation for... The King James Bible. So do you see how this, but do you see how this is shaping up historically? As you follow this, if you, as you follow these events historically, you can literally objectively and historically go back and you can read the writings of Jerome and the people who were involved with, with the Alexandrian text, and you can see exact they tell you in their writings what they did with, with God's word. They were not ashamed of it. They thought it was wonderful. Just like men today think it's wonderful to, they think it's so intellectual to stand there and say, well, this word should have been. No. You're not Lancelot Andrews who learned a new language every single summer in depth, could speak it, read it, and write it. You're not him. And, and, and then had 49 other men just like him working on this translation. I'll trust what they said should I'm not trusting what you said should be there. I'm just going to believe what God gave us in this book. And you can go back and you can see how those men translated the word of God. You can see their mentality. You can see the process they went through. And when you follow that line historically, and you see that everybody who came from this line in Antioch, they trusted the word of God. The Byzantine Empire protected it and never touched it. Did no damage to it. But here from Alexandria, you have the Western text and the, and the Alexandrian text. It can all be put together. It's, it's the same mentality. It's the same background. From Rome to Alexandria, Egypt, they believe the word of God is subject to their ideas and they changed it accordingly. And they were completely open about that. They were okay with that. They didn't see any problem with that. They thought you'd want to know what a wonderful thing they did. And they wrote it down on paper for everybody to read. And so anybody who wants to see this and to have an objective measure of where the Word of God is and where it came from, you can go through all these names and these people that I'm telling you about, and you can see what they thought about the Word of God and how they handled the Word of God. And you'll find all the way up to the King James Bible, 
from Antioch to the King James Bible, and even before that, it was in the hands of people who protected God's word, who, who believed God's word. All the way from Alexandria, you're going to find that people would just change it at will. We don't like this verse. We don't like the way this was said. This is going to hurt my religion. This is going to hurt my feelings, so I'm going to change this. And they've been doing that every since. All right. That's Erasmus. Great man. When I read about Erasmus, it, it makes me almost feel ashamed of myself. Um, he was just a, a diligent, intelligent, hardworking man who hardly had any light, but spent his entire life uh, doing a work that would, that would eventually preserve the word of God forever. So praise the Lord for men like him. Now we're going to go through this next section somewhat quickly because I want to get to, in the second half of class, um, to our two wonderful characters, Westcott and Hort. But for now, we're going to look at varying views regarding preservation. And we're going to talk about these quickly. I didn't want to go into depth in this section. Uh, I, I, think we're, I, I think as we go, you're seeing the various views of, of preservation and ways of handling God's word. You, you can see every step of the way what people thought about it all the way up to today. And, 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 and I can't wait to, you know, till we get to the section on John Burgeon. So we're going to look at Westcott and Hort and John Burgeon. That takes us all the way up past the King, 200 years past the King James Bible to the 1800s. And, and the reason we need to mention these two somewhat close together is because that's where the battle over the word of God was in the 1800s. It was an important time in history, and our brethren, Bible-believing Christians, should have followed John Burgeon, and they did not. They followed Westcott and Hort, many of them. Not all of them, but many of them. You'll have men who will stand in pulpits and say, you know, bless God, we're Baptists, we were never Protestants. Well, this word in the Greek should be, uh, it's like, you, where did you learn that? You didn't learn that from Bible-believers. You learn that from Protestantism. You learn that from, what, even worse, you learn that from Westcott and Hort. They taught you to treat the Word of God that way. And you need to be taught not to treat the Word of God that way, or you should go get a real job, sit down, and stop telling people you're a Bible, a Bible teacher. And it is, that, it is that destructive. Now, here's, that's the dogmatic side of it. Here's the, the careful side. God has used men over the centuries who did that very thing. And so you need to understand when that man does that, it, what it means is that man has been deceived in that area of the Christian life. He has been taught improperly about how to have confidence in the word of God. You need to be able to understand that. You need to be able to see that. But you also need to shut up and listen to what he's saying. And if it turns out that what he's saying is true, according to the Bible... Then, then you leave them alone. You don't, you, don't, you don't go cause, this is not a license to go cause problems with people. Because God, God over, over the ages, <clears throat> God used Erasmus to, give you, to help give you your Bible. A Roman Catholic priest. You and I would have had nothing to do with that man. <laughs> and it turns out that that's who God used to help preserve his word. So you need to be able to, this should be a, a step of maturity, not a step of divisiveness. That's very important. 
You don't, you don't go to people and you dogmatically say, we believe the King James Bible and the King James Bible only, and I don't want to hear anything you have to say if you don't believe that. Now, it, it grieves me when men stand in pulpits and tell young, impressionable people this word in the Greek, because that man has been deceived. That man is wrong. That man is copying and, and spouting the wisdom of Westcott and Hort, not John Burgeon. And so what I have to do is I have to calm myself, first of all, because I want to come busting out of the seats and, and sit that man down. And if I was the pastor of a church, I wouldn't let someone like that preach. They would not get in my pulpit and discourage people from believing after spending months and months and years and years trying to teach people to believe this book. You're not going to come sit, step in my pulpit and then direct people away from this book. But I'm not the pastor of a church. That's not my decision. So what I have to do is sit quietly, not say anything, not make faces, not embarrass my wife, and listen to what the man is saying. Because there's a good chance there is some truth in what that man is saying. And there's a good chance God might be using that man. So I don't want to be the one to cause him problems. Do you understand the difference? You need to be mature enough to recognize he doesn't know what he's talking about. He shouldn't have said that. And also mature enough to recognize, but what he said there was true. And I praise the Lord that he told these people that. You've got to have both. That doesn't mean you've got to follow him. That doesn't mean you've got to do what he says. That doesn't mean I wouldn't have anything to do with any school or any preacher who does that. But I'm going to be respectful to him. I'm not going to cause harm to his ministry. I'm not going to go looking to cause him problems. If he wants to talk about it, again, we, talk, we talked about relationships before. If you want to help people with this, the best way to do that is to build a relationship with them. If you have no relationship with them, they don't care what you have to say. But over time, if you get to know them and they realize, you know, I think we believe differently about this. Can we talk about it? And then you who have done your study can objectively and clearly demonstrate to them why you believe the King James Bible is the perfect word of God and why you, you don't discourage people from believing that. Everybody got that? Because what a lot of people do is take this information and they go out in the world and they start tearing churches apart over the Bible. Does that sound like a good thing to do? No, that's not what we're here for. You want to be a help to those churches and you're going to have to gain some maturity and some patience in order to be able to do that. All right. Many of our brethren have made scholarship their God. In doing so, they have adopted this idea that God really struggled to translate our Bible from Hebrew and Greek to the English language. God just couldn't handle the English language. He did okay with Hebrew. He did okay with Latin. He did okay with Greek. He did okay with the, the Syrian languages. He just couldn't handle English for some reason. Now, you know I'm being facetious, but that's, without saying that, that's what they're saying. God, God struggled with the Greek, but I'm here now. I, have, I, I took a semester of Greek in college, so now I can correct the Bible where God messed up. That's an idiotic idea, and, and I want to discourage you from stepping in that direction at all, in any way. Um, because God struggles with English, they help him out by teaching God's people that they must depend on men who know the Greek, whatever that is. Now, in reality, no such object exists that we can call the Greek. 
When someone says this word in the Greek is, what they are really saying is they looked up the English word in a Greek concordance, such as a Strong's concordance. I mean, that, that, I hope you understand the folly in that. I know I've repeated that multiple times so far in this class, but I hope you understand why that's important to note. It would be one thing if I had a Greek scholar in front of me who had some issues with, with something he saw in, in a Greek New Testament that, that was maybe the, the Textus Receptus, Theodore Bezos' Textus Receptus. If that man had some contention, I might be willing to listen to what he has to say. I, I'm still, I still believe this is the perfect word of God. But at least he would have some ground to stand on. The overwhelming majority of men who use this type of terminology can't read a word of Greek. They just look it up in a dictionary and say, okay, well, I'll try to remember what this word is, or I'll write it down in my notes. So when I'm in front of people, I can say it and I can sound intellectual. And you don't. You sound like a bozo because you don't know what you're talking about. And you're discouraging God's people from believing the book they have in their lap. And that is detrimental. If you can't, you're going to stand up. And it's so, it's amazing to me because these same people will say, we need to do what God's word says. But where is it? Well, in the originals, so we don't have it, so we can't do it. How can I do what God's word says if God's word is in a Greek manuscript that I can't get my hands on? And if I did get my hands on it, I can't read it. What's that going to do for me or you? So the whole thing is, is just is foolish. The whole, the, whole, the whole premise is foolish. When we need to define an English word, when do you go to a Greek dictionary to understand English words? Anybody here do that? At any time in your life, have you ever gone to a Greek dictionary so you can look up an English word? Why would you do that? If that makes no sense in any other area of life, how does it make sense here? Now, their, their attachment is, is to the, the Greek manuscripts that existed before our King James Bible existed. It still doesn't make any sense. You can't read Greek. You can't speak Greek. If you did get all the definitions to the words, you still don't know how they use that word. I'm learning Luganda, and, and, and sometimes I learn a new word, and I go and I try to use it, and people look at me like I'm crazy. Because while I might be saying the right word, culturally, you use it a certain way. And if it's not used in the cultural situation that you're used to, then I'm going to look silly. Kind of like someone with an English Bible trying to tell you what this word should be in the Greek. You don't have a clue what that word should be in the Greek. You don't know how it's used. If you did know the Greek word, what was the last time you were in a Greek-speaking country and you saw how that word was used effectively and properly and grammatically correct? I've been to Greece. I've been to Greece multiple times. I don't speak a word of Greek. If they didn't speak English to me, we didn't talk. And so I'm not going to get in a pulpit and refer to some Greek text that doesn't exist or display my lack of understanding about the Textus Receptus, which does exist, and discourage you from believing in the Word of God, which you have. It, it's, it's a silly, silly idea. Now, under the influence and worship of scholarship, Christians began to use textual criticism to scrutinize the Word of God. And this is where we get into trouble. Now, textual criticism has been a mark of scholarship for a long time. 
It, it is an actual science that men use to, uh, to compare and to verify uh, old text of, of all sorts, not just Greek, of any sort. Any ancient text will eventually be subject to textual criticism. And that is that, it, that it'll be published. It's supposed to be published for, for, so that men everywhere can have access to it. And then the men who understand the language and the history of the language and the direction of the culture and all the things we just talked about, they will scrutinize that text to try and verify its validity. Is it real? Is it fake? How old is it? At what time did they use this type of terminology? I mean, there's all sorts of information that men who have a good understanding of textual criticism can gather about a, about a text and, and wh- whether it's real or not. The problem is, you can't do that with the Bible. Didn't we say the Bible was living? When is the Bible ever going to be irrelevant? Never. So while Plato's words might become irrelevant in in its Greek form, the Word of God will never be that way. And so you can't subject Greek manuscripts that are the Word of God to this this form of textual criticism. Because what you do is, when when something is subject to textual criticism, what you're saying is, is this text cannot be considered real until I deem it so. And so as a result of that, it is subject to my opinion and to my authority. You can't subject the Word of God to your authority and your opinion. Now, do we want to know where the manuscript came from? Do we want to know its historical background? Do we want to know if it's real or not? Absolutely. How are you going to do that without making the Word of God subject to you and your opinion? I don't know. (laughs) What I do know is we have more than 5,000 manuscripts that came from a certain direction that all agreed together and have not been edited and are left exactly as they were the, the day they were created that are, that are a, li- a lineage of the Word of God. We have a secondary line of manuscripts that we can see objectively and historically they have been edited, they have been changed, they were subject to the will of the author or the person who was, who was handling them, and they've been changed multiple times and repeatedly over history. So if you're looking for the one that remained pure, which one are you going to go with? Are you going to go with the one where the people who handled it openly admit, I edited the text? Or are you going to go with the one that had no editing, no changes, it, it, they, they left it as it is and believed it as it was? And that, that's essential. It's a question you need to settle in your heart and mind. Since the creation of the King James Bible, the devil has been fighting it and produces corrupt replicas to take its place. The process used to accomplish this on the devil's behalf is textual criticism. Textual criticism is used to determine the validity and historical background of various ancient texts. As Christians came to worship scholarship rather than God, they became dependent upon the techniques applied to ancient texts. This seems harmless at first, maybe even a good thing, but textual criticism comes with certain certain ideological mindsets. That's where the trouble is. Ideology. All right, so the men that handled the Word of God in this way had a certain ideology regarding the Word of God. They had a certain mentality, a certain way of thinking. And we're going to look at that more in depth 
soon. But when, you, when, when that ideology is forced upon, say, a, you know, a, 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 an, an extant Byzantine text, well, that text is subject to what that man says. If that man doesn't believe that a certain word or phrase should be there, then he'll just deem that the text is not, is not valid. Well, what's his basis for saying that? What's his opinion? It, 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 this is not a man who... How many, how many intellectuals today are good Bible-believing Christians? How many intellectuals do you think back then were good Bible-believing Christians? There might have been more back then, but very few. In fact, the, the, the major battle for Christians throughout history has been this, this group of, pe- of people known as the elites or the intelligentsia or intellectuals who, who hated God's word and wanted control over anything religious whatsoever. And so throughout history, we've been fighting these people continually. They come up with new ideas all the time. You know, you had the Enlightenment and then science became the big thing. So now they use science to, to bash the word of God, even though every time you follow the scientific method, whatever comes out agrees with the word of God. So they come up with theories. And so rather than revealing any validity to the theory, we'll use this theory, call it the science, and we'll use it to fight the word of God. And if your, if your Bible doesn't fit with my theory, then, then we're going to throw out your Bible. But is, and you might ask them, but isn't a, isn't a theory just an idea that hasn't been proven? Bigot. <laughs> Get out. We hate you. You're just, you're just trying to cause problems. No. No. I, I'm interested in truth. Truth. If you have some truth that will verify to me that the Bible is not true, that, that contradicts the word of God, let's see it because it doesn't exist. You will always be able to prove the Bible is correct or you will not be able to prove it's correct, but you will never be able to prove it's wrong. You understand the difference between those three? It will e- you will either verify what it said is true or you will have no, no evidence that exists to prove whether it's true or untrue but you will never find anything that exists that is contrary to the word of God that can be called truth. It, it doesn't exist. The Bible makes many, many assertions that we can't, we can't prove one way or the other. God's throne is in heaven, in the third heaven. Prove that to me. <laughs> well, you can't disprove it and you can't prove it. But there are numerous areas, that, statements that the Bible makes. The Bible says, when a man comes into this world, he can bring nothing with him. Is that true? When a man leaves this world, he can take nothing with him. Is that true? Okay, so I can go through the Bible, and I can look at all the statements it makes, and I can verify whether it's true, untrue, or can't be proven true or untrue, but you will not find a statement made in the Bible that is verified scientifically, historically, archaeologically to be untrue. It doesn't exist. There's no other book like that in the world. Nothing else exists that can, that can hold up to that type of scrutiny. And still they reject it and they want to fight against it. That mindset places the scholar above the word of God. And, and then in this scenario, the Bible becomes subject to man's validation 
and this will never work. Man is subject to the Bible. The Bible is not subject to man. Uh, Christians who have been influenced by textual criticism will say things like this. The King James Bible is true in the originals. That is the stupidest statement I have ever heard. Think about what you're saying. What you're saying is the King James Bible is not true. If it's, it makes no sense. So if in the original, the original King James Bible is 1611, the King James Bible. So what are you referring to? You think about the statement. The KJV is true. Okay. Now, if you believe the Bible, you just stop there. It's, it's the word of God. It's true. But no, they continue in the originals. Okay, so what are you saying here is true? The sentence is incoherent. It makes no sense. But what you're saying by this is that this, not true, this is true. How can this be true here when this is not here? (laughs) They're not the same thing. It's an incoherent statement, but it's a way for people who don't want to say, who don't want to argue and say that the King James Bible is not the word of God. It's a, it's a nice politically correct way for them to say, we use the King James Bible, but we don't really believe it's the word of God. It's, it's kind of the best we've got for now, but maybe someday God will give us better. For now, we believe the word of God is in the originals. Okay, I'll play that game. Where are the originals? Which one have you read? Which one did you verify? Which one can you read? Which one did you get your hands on? Are you talking about the Textus Receptus? Are you talking about the majority text? Are you talking about the Byzantine text? If it's the Textus Receptus, are you talking about the Adorbasis editions? Are you talking about Erasmus editions? Which one of those editions? What are you referring to as the originals? Do you see the trouble you get yourself in when you won't just believe and appreciate what God gave you? That, that's a long dance you got to do to, to get back to wherever it is you say the originals are. And 99.9% of people don't have a clue what, the, what they're saying when they say the originals. They, they think this group of Greek manuscripts that is the original that was, that was written by Paul and that was written by Peter and that was written by James, it exists somewhere out in a cloud and I guess they can, they can do like the, the guy you guys were dealing with the other day. They can just go on Google and Google it and find out where that cloud is and hope they can find out where the originals are. There are no originals. We'll look at it when we get there, but again, where are the original Ten Commandments? What happened to them? They were destroyed. Moses destroyed them before. The only person that saw them were God and Moses. Moses threw them down and and, and destroyed them. So do you have the original Ten Commandments? If you do, bring them to me. We will be rich. (laughs) Now, when Moses destroyed them, did you read what God did? God was shattered. What am I going to do? That's the only copy I had. You just lost it. How am I going to get it into English? Nobody's going to believe me when I get to English now that you destroyed the originals. That's not what God did. He said, Moses, now you're going to go carve two tablets of stone and you're going to write on it what I tell you. 
and he wrote it all over again. First copy was written by the finger of God himself. The second copy, since Moses wanted to let his anger be known, (laughs) God made him carve it out himself. So God has no problems moving his word around as he needs to. He has no problems going from... Did you, did you realize... Do you, you, I hope you know this, but God created every man that exists on this planet or who, who has ever existed on this planet. Does everybody know that here? Okay. That, I'm not insulting your intelligence. What I'm telling you is God does not struggle with languages. He does not struggle to get his word in other languages. On the day of Pentecost, he got his, his word immediately in, in multiple languages all at one time. And it was no problem for him. It's a good thing there were no English speakers there. Otherwise, God would have struggled. (laughs) But do you see the folly? You go through the word of God. Anytime God wanted someone who didn't speak Hebrew or Greek to understand his word, he had no trouble communicating with them and getting his word into their language. Why is it a problem now? Did God become weak? Is he, is he sick? Did he forget about English? It's just, it's, it's, in other words, the King James Bible is not true, but they suppose the originals are true somehow. They, they haven't the read them, God. they haven't seen them, but, but, but I think we've demonstrated that. They have never read the originals, so they don't know if the originals are true or not. Furthermore, the originals do not exist. So to say it is true in the originals is an insane statement that cannot be verified in any way whatsoever. If asked about the King James Bible, they will respond by talking about the Textus Receptus. This is something else that drives me up the wall. Um, On my podcast, I have a a series of interviews that I like to do. I like to interview men that have been an influence on me, men that I respect. And one of the questions I like to ask them is, what you know, to some extent, I don't remember word for word, but, but what... What impact has the King James Bible had on your ministry or on your life? Something along those lines. And I have to be very careful who I ask that question to. Because some of them, some of the men that that I've asked that question respond by saying, well, the Textus Receptus is this. Wait a minute. I asked you about the King James Bible. Why are you talking to me about the Textus Receptus? What does that have to do with an English, a complete English Bible? I ask you about the complete word of God in the English language, and you're telling me about a Greek New Testament that you've never read and couldn't read if you had one. That's a problem. Now, that man doesn't know how stupid what he just said is. He thinks he's saying the right thing, and he thinks that I agree with it. (laughs) And so once again, I have to sit quietly and... Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm deleting this part. <laughs> this is not going on my podcast. I am not encouraging people to distrust the Word of God. I'm going to encourage people to believe the perfect Word of God, which we have, and it can be demonstrated to be so. So, hopefully some of them listen to this and will change that. Not likely, though. <laughs> They cannot speak of the validity of the King James Bible. They feel they must refer to the Textus Receptus, which they have never read and cannot read because it is in the Greek language. They will say the King James Bible is the best available translation. 
It's just, it's the best God could do. Maybe someday God will brush up on English and come back and try it again. Now, when we get to the King James translators, you're really going to see the foolishness of this. One of the King James translators was reading. These are men from England. What language do they speak in England? English. At three years old, three years old, he was reading a Hebrew Bible with understanding. When did you learn to read the Hebrew Bible with understanding? Yeah. I couldn't get past the first letter, much less the first word. At three years old, he's reading a Hebrew Bible and he understands what he's reading. My daughter's a year and a half. She's about almost a year and a half. She's smart. She loves books. She loves to read. She can't do that. Now, I hope at three she could do that, but it's not likely. She's very intelligent. She learns quickly. She's not doing that at three years old. If she could, again, we'd be rich, but... (laughs) Come watch a three-year-old read a Hebrew Bible. All right, so they are perfectly willing to criticize the book they can read in their own language, but they will tell you the Texas Receptus, a book they cannot read, is perfect. And again, which edition? Who's Texas Receptus? They don't even know multiple copies of the Texas Receptus exist. They, they, just, they just assume I can point to this, again, mythical creature called the Texas Receptus, and, and it'll save me someday. Men who refer to the Greek cannot speak Greek and cannot read Greek. These men study the basics of the Greek language in college for one or two semesters, and somehow they are now experts in the Greek language. In reality, they use a Strong's Concordance to look up a Greek word, and then they decide. They decide. You understand that? They look up the Greek words that could fit in a certain situation in a Greek concordance, and then they decide the word that they believe should go there. That's that's the Alexandrian mentality. I'm not happy with the word God gave me. I'll just go look it up, and I'll come up with another word. And, and then I'll tell everybody else, this is the word God meant to put there. God messed up here. I'm going to help him out. He's got me here now. I'm going to save him. And so I'm going to find the real word that goes here. And, and I'll let God know when we get to heaven that he messed up. And he shouldn't have done that to you. But thank God he gave you me so that I can help you. That's the wrong mentality to have. That's an awfully twisted mentality. This foolish approach to language and the Bible will be strongly contrasted by the King James translators. They were godly men and linguistic scholars of the highest order. This was literally the greatest assembly of linguistic scholars the world has ever seen. There has never been anything like it since 1604 through 1611 when it it all took place. The greatest linguistic scholars the world has ever seen all assembled together in one place to work on one book. Nothing like that has ever happened again. Why would you not trust the book God gave you? That's who God used to perform this work. What's the problem? The King James translators were godly men and linguistic scholars of the highest order. It would seem that men who worship scholarship 
would bow down at the altar of the greatest assembly of linguistic scholars the world has ever seen. Now, this, again, this is how you know it's not, it's not about evidence, and it's not really about scholarship. Dean John Burgeon was an unbelievable scholar. His research, and, and again, he, he went through a process called collating, where he gathered together all the evidence and wrote all his books and laid out his arguments in an unbelievably coherent and godly way. He demonstrated that you could apply a certain form of textual criticism that was after a godly sort. Well, how come nobody wants to be intellectual like him? Why do they want to be intellectual like Westcott and Hort? Why do men not want to follow intellectuals like Erasmus? They would rather follow Jerome. Why, why do Bible-believing Christians and Bible-believing colleges teach Westcott and Hort and teach Jerome, but assist in mocking Dean Burgeon and, and the, the, the King James translators? Why do they do that? If it's about scholarship, there is no greater uh, you know, application of scholarship than those 50 men coming together to create the King James Bible. Why don't you follow them? And they don't. They reject them. Modern-day textual criticism was put in place by two men. Two devils. Um, we're, I mean, we're, we're going to talk about these men, but we're not even going to get into the worst of it. We're, we're basically going to talk about their doctrinal issues. Uh, it goes much deeper. Westcott and Hort. I mean, just look at their names. That should automatically tell you there's a problem. It's kind of like Alexandria or something like that. (laughs) Sorry, Alexandria. (laughs) It's your your dad's fault. These men were two devils who did much to harm faith in God's word. Every man today who says this word in the Greek has been influenced by these men either directly or indirectly. You should be concerned about any man who teaches you Greek from an English Bible. You should automatically understand that man's been deceived. He has no idea what he's talking about. And I'm going to sit here and be nice and be quiet, but I'm not going to listen to anything he has to say. Because he doesn't know what he's talking about. He has been misled by the devil and influenced by ungodly men. This approach to God's word treats the word of God like any other book and denies God's hand in preservation. You throw out all God's promises when you follow after this form of textual criticism. You're saying that God did not and could not preserve his word. And the book we have in English is not the preservation of the word of God. That that is objectively and coherently what you're saying. You're putting on a different show. But in reality, what you're teaching people is you can't trust the Word of God. You don't have the Word of God. It doesn't exist. You couldn't go anywhere to get it. And so the Bible is not Homer's Odyssey or Plato's Republic. It cannot be approached in that way. It must be viewed as it is in truth, the Word of God. We do not adhere to the principles of textual criticism, but rather we test what the Bible says about Itself. Now, you're going to tell me this Bible hasn't stood the test of time? 400 plus years, 
How many people have sworn to get rid of the King James Bible and to destroy the King James Bible? And here it sits right in front of us. There is no reason not to trust this book. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. You can learn more about our ministry by visiting www.plenteousredemption.com. You can hear more Plenteous Redemption podcast audio at www.plenteousredemption.media. Please comment below if this podcast has been a help to you. Also, inform us of future topics that would interest you. Thank you again for listening to the Plenteous Redemption podcast.